You're listening to Power Producers Shop Talk, where we are refining and redefining the sales game by equipping you with the tools you need to differentiate yourself in the marketplace. Well, it's like when we audit the mod with Mod Advisor and are able to give them the action items that they're going to use to lower their total cost of risk. Tactical skills that will help you provide deliverable value to your clients and prospects. It's going to be a great year in 2022 at Florida Risk Partners now that IPFS is in the game with their total pay strategy. We can write excess and surplus lines and completely remove the agency bill from our agency. People, if you're not using total pay by IPFS, you're definitely leaving money on the table. And action items that you can provide to take your prospects and clients to the next level. Having partners like Mineral only bolsters the fact that your clients do not care about the insurance. It's all of the value that you're able to add. And with partners like Mineral who can help with both HR and environmental health and safety, we can't help but win. This is Power Producers Shop Talk. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? Let's talk about total cost of risk because I think this is something that a lot of people, you know, we talk about it. We don't talk about it probably enough on these calls, which is why I wanted to dedicate today and now our next call to it as well. But there's really five things that you need to be thinking about when you're talking about total cost of risk. And listen, you got to go slow with this. And there's a way that you present it when you're talking to a prospect. And we'll get into that. For the first part of this, I'm going to talk to y'all as insurance agents. And then for the second part of it next week, we're going to talk about how do we take this and relate it to our clients. And it's actually going to be good because I'll come back with some, some even more examples and some scenarios and things. But the first one's the most obvious, right? If you were to go to a prospect right now and say, hey, we don't focus on insurance premiums. We focus on total cost risk. They're going to say, what's the difference? So if you got that answer, let's put somebody on the spot. If you got that answer, Jeremy, you're one of my favorites to pick on. If you walked into a prospect and said, you know, you're going to talk to them about total cost of risk and they say, say, what's the difference between total cost of risk and insurance premiums? How would you respond? And I know I'm setting you up. You're setting me up. That's fine. Well, I would ask them with a smile, do you want to focus on 20% of what the total cost is or the full cost? Bingo. That, I mean, that's that's a good answer. And I think, you know, another way to say that, not that Jeremy's was wrong, that was actually a really good way to say it. Um, but you got to let them know premium is important. But I always, I, I always tell them, I understand because you're so used to being sold insurance, you assume that's where the cost ends. Insurance premiums are certainly a, a, a component of total cost of risk. They're a good sized component of total cost of risk, but there are really five things that make up total cost of risk that we need to contemplate and that our firm looks at to make sure we're giving you the best overall value and dropping cost as much as we can. Keep in mind, we're in a hard market. Language is going to matter right now. I never say price because price equals premium. Cost is a much softer word, even though it basically means the same thing. Cost is a more encompassing word. It doesn't sound cheap. Price price is immediately going to commoditize you in the transaction because that's all they're going to focus on. 
So if you can speak in terms of cost as opposed to price, you're going to do a lot better. But the other three things that you need to, the other four things rather that are part of it is retained losses, loss control costs, administration costs, and indirect costs. And so I want to drill down on some of that stuff because I don't think that a lot of people um, really focus on the stuff outside of the insurance premium. Some of the people in Killing Commercial focus on indirect costs because you've all heard me vomit it out a bunch of times, but there are things inside of just each one of those components we need to be thinking about, right? So with the insurance, we understand basically how insurance policies are rated, how insurance, how rates are, are, are um, derived and how you can control rate, right? There's only a few ways you can do it. Claims reduction, you can take um, higher retentions or deductibles, you can lower limits, although we would never, um, you know, ask somebody to do that. And then you can get into other things. If you're involved in risk retention groups and captives, there may be some fees there around insurance premiums that would get lumped in. But I think that one that we don't focus on enough, and I've given this example a few times, is retained losses. Okay. And when, when we talk about retained losses, you have, and guys, I'm going straight out of the CRM playbook here. This is directly what they teach in CRM. So there's no, this isn't any opinion involved in what I'm saying. It's either active or passive. An active retention is a self-insured retention or deductible that you know about. And passive means that the claim wasn't covered or it wasn't actively contemplated in, I mean, I guess I would put, if you're going to try and self-insure for a claim, like a fender bender or whatever, I would probably classify that as active as well, because you consciously made the decision, but I could see an argument for making it passive since it wasn't contemplated in the budgets at the beginning of the year, right? And so when you look at things like um, retained losses, this is why it's important to really pay attention to what you see on loss runs when you get them. When I've been out speaking the last three or four places that I've been, one of the questions that I, or one of the scenarios that I propose to the audience is if you meet with a prospect and they tell you they will give you one thing, which is one piece of information, what are you going to ask for? And I know if I'm in the right room, when 99% of the people scream out deck pages, what good do deck pages do for us? They tell us nothing other than somebody else worked on the account and it may or may not be right. 100% of the time I'm looking at loss runs because that's the real story of what's going on in the account. If you understand how to read the loss runs, guess what? Believe it or not, you're probably going to figure out how to get to the rate pretty, pretty closely as well. So, um, I like to look at the loss runs. And when I do, I'm not just talking about workers comp. You know, I've got the contractors, God love them. They, they always think they know the better way. And if everybody just held hands and did things the right way, they wouldn't pay nearly as much for their insurance as they do trying to skirt the system. But I can tell you unequivocally that I don't know that I have a plumber in my book that at some point along the way hasn't tried to handle claims, paying them out themselves that are below $5,000, right? So, or 2,500 or whatever it is. So when you look at the loss runs, if there's any kind of data, I mean, significant data, like if they've got a few claims on there, look and see what the break even, the cutoff point is. If you don't see anything below 2,500, then you can reasonably ask the question, hey, I noticed you don't have anything 2,500 or lower on here. Do you not have small claims or how do you handle small claims? 
they're going to tell you. And most of the time they're going to brag about that. It was, oh, no, any of that stuff. We want to keep that off the insurance company's plate because it's just going to cost us more money in premium. Great, Einstein. You just adjusted a claim and accepted liability. And if anything were to come from that in the future, we have no way of getting it covered if we have to go back to the carrier and say, oh, by the way, two years ago, this little leak was something that we paid $2,500 to fix. Now it's a mold problem that's going to require us to pull the drywall out of the entire bottom floor of the house. When all we had to do is report the claim, get it fixed the right way, have the insurance company sign off on it, right? If the insurance company would have paid somebody to come out and do that work and fix it and that happened, now we have a, a have recourse to go back against that contractor. When you do it yourself, you don't. And it's a direct violation of the terms and conditions of the policy. And so I tell people all the time, I don't care if you take the first 2,500 of the claim. I don't care if you take the first 5, 10, 25,000 of the claim. You need to let the carrier know. What you're doing is setting yourself up at a financial disadvantage because you're not getting the credits associated with taking a deductible, yet you're operating like you have one. You're also not getting the benefit of the contracted rates of the insurance carrier with the contractors that they have vetted to send out there. And you're probably paying more unless you're just doing a brother-in-law deal where you're going to go fix something for your buddy you know, in a couple of weeks when the same thing happens to him. But they're not getting the most efficient premium as a result of that. So you've got to really look at what they're doing from an active and passive loss retention standpoint. You know, I'm not even going to get into talking about, you know, policy limits and how that works and the captives and stuff, because truthfully, we're not going to really get into captives as much in killing commercial because those people likely all have risk managers and TPAs and stuff. And we're not going to bring the same level of value unless we're actually the ones that are structuring it. In which case, I'm still not going to talk about it. I'm going to let you talk to an expert that I know. And we'll, you know, if you so if you want to go down that road, because a lot of people and the only reason I even bring that up is in the hard market. I'm hearing, how many people, raising hand, how many people are hearing captive more now than ever? And by captive, I'm not talking about state farm, you know, farmers and all of them. I'm talking about a captive insurance program and specifically for property. I could be a billionaire if I could figure out a way to construct a good captive for real estate investors right now, because there are none, as far as I'm aware. They've all dried up. None of them have capacity. And the ones that were there are losing their shirts. So, I think that um, retained, you know, retained losses is one that everybody needs to consider. Loss control costs is another one. Matthew Rogers just talked about how he had Yellowbird go out and do a baseline assessment for this large construction account that he's going after, and that's a cost. Matthew passed that cost on to the client. So in that client's total cost of risk, they need to add that. Speaking of which, let me back up for just a second. The other caveat to the whole deductible retention thing with people who are playing claims out of pocket is at some point during that conversation, you need to ask them, how many of these claims have you paid? I don't know. Well, how are you accounting for that? Right? You want to get that number. Because you might find out that they've paid $25,000, $30,000 out of pocket for claims, but they're complaining because your insurance quote is, is $10,000 higher. Well, my quote's $10,000 higher, but you don't have a deductible, yet you're operating like you have one. And now you've really paid you know, a net of the difference in what you paid in claims in the $10,000 in increase in my premium. You're paying more to go the other direction when if you would just do things the right way and stay with our program, you would be fine. So- you got to look at that stuff because people are playing all kinds of games with quotes right now. We have one of our clients that I have had for almost 20 years that sent that I handed to Kyle. It's a smaller relationship, but it's still probably 15,000 in revenue. When Kyle came on board, 
my non-compete had just run up and he happened to call. Yeah, Kyle actually happened to call on my relationship and got a meeting. And so she had no clue I was even had opened the agency yet or anything else. And the only reason she knew is because my name showed up on the meeting invite to go out and talk with them. This lady emails Kyle last week and says, I need you to go to market and get quotes. I don't want to leave you guys, but we we have to. Uh, we have to have to do something about our insurance. Now, this is an electrical contractor that has all kinds of specific endorsements and everything that they need to do because they're not doing stuff for homeowners. They're doing commercial and industrial work. And it's with auto owners and it has every endorsement that it's supposed to have. But some some guy in a, in an, a Main Street agency that they may buy their personal lines from or whatever cobbles together a, a GL quote with Tokyo Marine. By the way, excess and surplus lines, not exactly sure how they're going to move from an admitted product to that. That's against the law. Number two, infinity for the auto on a six-month policy. They never picked that up. The payroll on the GL was a third of the actual audited payroll last year, and they're not they're not shrinking in size. They're actually growing. And so we sat down and showed all of this stuff to her. And she's like, oh my gosh, there's no way I could go and do this. No, you couldn't. But thank God she had the courtesy to email us and tell us and let us have an opportunity to look at it and educate her because she would have made a really bad decision that would have cost them a lot of money because they wouldn't be able to work because the certificates weren't going to be in compliance. And Tokyo Marine doesn't have, has anybody ever even seen Tokyo Marine on an electrician before? I've not. That's not even, you have out in California? No kidding. That That's not a market that we would typically see people at. So thankfully, we were able to sit down and talk through that stuff and make sure that she understood the ramifications of what she was doing. And I told her, I said, look, I can't compete on the auto rate, but it's also a six-month policy. And I don't think you want to know what the surprise looks like in six months when that first renewal comes up and you realize they bought the business and now they're going to get their pound of flesh. So we were able to save it, but I mean, we are fighting. Everybody's fighting right now for retention. Even though new business opportunities are easier to get in front of, you got you can't take your eye off the ball for what you've already got because those people are shopping too. I never in a million years would have. I mean, this this lady has known me since I was two hundred and thirty pounds. Let that sink in for a minute. That's how that's how well I was built back then when I wrote that, and so. It was it 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 jarred me a little bit. It got in my head. And that's one of the reasons why education is huge right now. You've got to be more of an educator than a salesperson. And if you educate the right way, you don't have to be a salesperson. But you've got people that are making decisions about their home and auto as well as their business stuff that aren't qualified to make those decisions because they're simply making it based off of a price that's on the bottom line. And when we push and we push and people say, oh, well, I can't afford the premium. Give me a deductible of, of, of $25,000. If you can't afford the premium, you certainly can't afford the claim or the loss inside the deductible layer. That's insane. So take time to educate these people. It takes longer, but that's what's going to get you through the hard market. You will gain more loyalty by investing more now, even though it sucks and it takes a lot of time that none of us have. That's The retention's got to be key. So loss control is a big piece of it. And I want to make sure that everybody understands, like I always say this, 
because I feel morally obligated to do that. I'm an investor in Yellowbird, okay? I talk about it all the time. It's not because I'm an investor. It's because I use the product in the agency and the people in Killing Commercial have used the product, have won business as a result. There are other services out there that you can use for loss control. I've not found one that has a slicker interface between the agency and the client or prospect. It used to be that, and by the way, if you don't want to pay people, you Number one, you're going to pay people regardless if you're using third parties. But if you don't want to go through an app like Yellowbird to do that, the number one way I, I built Yellowbird originally in the form of a bunch of business cards sitting on my desk. That's what it was. That was my network. You know, remember, as things change in the insurance marketplace, the carriers are adjusting for profitability too. So much of their loss control budget is gone and they can't bring those resources in house. So they outsource a lot of it or they can't find the talent. It's one of the reasons why I always recommend that if you're a producer, you go to every single loss control visit for every single client. When you do, not only are you going to build relationships with the loss control people that are going to be at the carriers that you're going to see over and over and over again, but you're going to find out. And one of the questions I ask, pay attention to this, because this is the question you want to ask is, are you a direct employee of the carrier or are you a 1099 with your own consulting firm? And the reason I ask that question is because if they're really good on that visit, I want to ask them at the end of the visit if it would be a conflict of interest since they work for Amtrust or um, ICW or whoever else. I want to ask them if it would be okay if I have work that I need to have done for my clients. And let's say they're an expert in hospitality. I've got a resort that I represent. Uh, if I need to have a baseline risk assessment done, would that be something I could have you do through your company? Or would that be a conflict of interest? And every single time it's not because they're not beholden to the company. And you know, especially if it's not insured with the company that you met them at. I mean, so it's pretty clear there. It's just a longer process to do that. Um, the reason I like Yellowbird is because I can literally set the job up from my office and get everything done and know that I'm going to get the absolute best quality person out there. The best loss control people are not going to work for an insurance agency. They're not going to work for an insurance carrier because neither is going to pay them what they're really worth. They're going to go start their own consulting company, charge a thousand or $1,500 a day or whatever it is. And they're going to make a lot of money doing that. So those are the people that are on Yellowbird. All Yellowbird is, is a marketplace where you get connected to them through technology and the algorithm that matches you to the best person for the job. That's it. So I would say that, Matt, you had a good experience. I've not had anybody yet that's given me negative feedback. I've used Yellowbird probably a half dozen times so far on my clients. And it's a nice way for you to update your, it's a nice way for you to augment what the carrier is going to give you because the carrier is not going to give you something good on loss control. That's this is this is the main reason why I'm so adamant about doing a baseline assessment for our middle market clients. I want to see everything before we get in bed with them on the insurance piece. So we have the baseline done. And now I know where we need to work. And that helps me set my budget per account. When you get on these larger accounts, you can't just be flinging money at them like, you know, you're making it rain. It's just not going to work. You've, you've got to have a budget for your account. And there's a, there's a strategy in doing that too. But, you know, obviously, if they've got fleet safety issues, and Zurich is on the account, Zurich in Florida has an outstanding fleet safety program. I don't have to go 
to Yellowbird to come in and do fleet safety, if I can assign that to Zurich as part of the relationship moving forward when they insure the account. Now I don't have to worry about fleet safety as part of the budget, but maybe there's some ergonomic issues and Zurich doesn't really have a strong ergonomist. I'm going to go to Yellowbird and look for that and have them come in and do the evaluation of a of a uh, workstation or to make sure people are trained appropriately or look at guarding and all of those things because the loss runs and the baseline risk assessment dictate we have issues there. You got to know where to pick and choose. If you want a rule of thumb for what I've always used, and I think I've talked about it on these calls before, your number one for me is 20% of whatever the revenue is. So if I write a $50,000 account, I'm going to put 10,000 into revenue. They are not getting 20% in year number two. They're probably going to get, instead of 10,000, they may get 2,500 or 5,000 from the agency. If they want to split anything, then I would be happy to do that. But the reason I do it in year number one is because I want to front load the service and make sure that they see we are working our tails off to get rid of as much low-hanging fruit and drive as much change as we can in the organization in year number one. If we do that effectively, year number two, you don't need as much of a budget. If I do, then I'm going to go look. If it's an account that I have a service fee on, it's a whole lot easier to deal with because I can just let them know, look, I got to have more loss control budget, got to increase the fee by this many dollars this year. If we're operating inside of a finite amount and commission, it's a different conversation because I'm not going to pick up the difference if if we need to, to pay more. I've, I also have to be profitable. I'm willing to take a haircut in year one to sort of cement ourselves in place and deliver. Year number two, we're going to continue to strategically pick those things that we need to do to, to fix the, the risk profile of the account. If your client has to go in and hire loss control, one of the things you need to be thinking about is what's the cost benefit of that? If I invest $2,500 to have somebody come and do this, what's the realistic potential savings I would get on my insurance program? Listen, these are things you can negotiate with the underwriter on the front end when you're not hinging your entire deal on getting the insurance policy placed, right? We go out and do a baseline and there's some DOT compliance issues and some things that the underwriter is not overly happy about. I can go pitch, look, if the, the client's going to spend the money one way or the other, if I can get them to invest over here and get this stuff taken care of, are you willing to give us some concessions on the rate as a result of the investment? Because you're now getting a better an account that should perform better. And I'm going to make my money up on the contingency commission in theory. If the account performs well, based even though it's going to be lower premium, my bonus should be more. So I, you know, I look at all of this stuff. When I was a producer, I didn't care about any of that. All I cared about was let me bring the business in the door. Oh, you need loss control? Sure, we'll give you whatever you want. And I mean, I was just going crazy, delivering all kinds of, of great service. But if I were the agency principal, I probably would have fired myself because I was spending more money than I should have to, to deliver that. You don't have to do it all in year number one. But certainly, if you invest in the loss control piece, the premiums should go down as a result. And the other thing that happens in many cases is you avoid regulatory compliance issues. Think about this. If you, in, if you invest in the right kind of training for your people and you end up having an OSHA audit, think about how much you could have been fined if you wouldn't have done that, right? And I tell the story about the guy that I brought on as an account that has a chain of auto services facilities. 
And I, I did the baseline myself for that because I know that industry well. And, you know, one of the things that I always look for, and this is again, low hanging fruit. I know I've said it about a hundred times on the call today, but as you're, if you're a producer and you're going in to meet with an account, specifically if it's in manufacturing or anything that could do any, use any kind of hazardous materials, you need to ask them to take a look at the MSDS sheets and ask them to review their HASCOM program. Find out if they even have one. Chances are they've got something in a dusty employee handbook or a safety manual, but I can promise you, man, those MSDS sheet binders, they never have everything in it. They're usually filthy. They're usually dangling uh, from a bracket next to the time clock because legally that's where they have to be put someplace where everybody can see them but you need to look at that so i went in and i looked at i did the baseline this guy's got a lot of, of issues around hascom and i told him that i said we really need to get a hascom program in place for you this isn't gonna this isn't gonna fly and his response to me was i've been doing this for 40 years and or 30 years and i've never had an issue with it he goes it's not a problem in my industry and i said sir it absolutely is a problem in your industry and just because you've not been fined or worse had an injured employee as a result doesn't mean that it's not something that could happen and he he kept pushing back and arguing with me and i ended up going online and spent a bunch of time and found three different industry publications from that exact year that said hascom was the number one cited osha fine when people went into auto service shops and i sent all of those to him and said just wanted to let you know i do my research before i meet with people this was the basis of my recommendation in addition to the conditions that i saw today guess what happened we put hascom in guess what else happened he had an employee get injured osha came in and because he had that he, he skated by with minimal issues. If he wouldn't have had that and the employee was issued as a it was injured as a result of a hazardous substance, which was the case, it was brake fluid. Guess what? He would have had a much larger fine. So again, we're in a situation, I think a lot of times, and I'm going to wrap up with this because I'm only through like, I'm not even going to tell you what page I'm on page four of 17 is what I'm on of my notes. So we're, we got at least next week's call in this, but, Here's what I want you to understand. You have got to be firm with each one of your clients and prospects. I understand it's a hard market. I understand we're under production pressure, but you have to realize that when you're really dealing with these people, the way that you should be dealing with them, you can't let them push you around. You have to be an advocate for them and you have to let them know that sometimes that means the, the two of you are not gonna agree, but they're paying you to give them your best advice to make their company better. And you, you respectfully ask that they do that. I butt heads with my clients all the time. It's always professional and we always leave friends, but I don't back down from them if I don't agree with the direction and what they're doing. I also have gained a lot of respect from people because I do stand my ground. Now, I don't fight with them over every single thing, but I think we're in a time right now where people are going to test the limits a lot more. And if you're a producer on here, you don't need to put your agency's E&O and your agency principal at risk or your own livelihood for that matter by letting somebody push you into doing a deal that you shouldn't be doing because it's not morally or ethically right or it goes against the best advice that you gave somebody. Stand your ground, stick to your guns, and you're going to end up way better off. Guys, this is going to be a series. There's no way I'm getting through it all next week either based on what I've seen. So come back for uh, part two of Total Cost to Risk next week, and I will see you then. Everybody have a good one.
been listening to Power Producers Shop Talk. You can follow us at the Power Producers Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And if you want to take your game to the next level, check out our commercial insurance training course at killingcommercial.com or visit Amazon to pick up a copy of our international best-selling book, The Extra Two Minutes. 